Welcome to this week in sprinkling water. I think today we're just going to sprinkle some water and and bring this back to basics. Bring this back to just being a mental health check-in for me, me and myself. It's um, I'm I'm feeling incredibly flat. It's like it's weird because there's like this. There is a stage of burnout where you actually become incredibly Buddhist and enlightened because it's if I just sit in silence, which is, by the way, what I want to do, I just want to sit in a silent room and, and, be, and not say anything. If I sit like that, I have no thoughts, which is like almost pleasant. It's almost pleasant to just sit and have no thoughts because normally shit's racing, you know? But it's like now I have nothing and I'm completely flat. And and it's like that would be pleasant if there wasn't this thing of, you know, bubbles of guilt just bubbling up from these underwater geysers on the from the seafloor of my fucking subconscious. Just guilt, just guilty about not having thoughts or just feeling bad about it all. Like it's like, God, I wish I could just allow myself to. I'm going to allow myself to just be this way because I think what I need to do is actually, I need to just let myself be like this a little bit because I've been pushing really hard and I've been trying to get everything good and everything's been good, but it's meant some really big weeks of way too many hours at work. And then, you know, Tuesday night, I get off work. There's stuff I don't have time to do. I run out of fumes. Like, God damn it, dude. <clears throat> the last thing I had to do, and it's like, <sighs> what I needed to do on Tuesday was I needed to build a schedule. And it's like, it's really in a bad situation because I think, like we, God, how do, is it interesting for me to explain this? Normally, it's like there's 25 people there. I make a schedule for all 25. They all have little parameters within which, like how much or little they want, when they're available. They have, you know, things that they want, things that we can and can't accommodate. And I have to like weigh everyone's needs and requirements and, you know, keep it performance-based and give you everything if you're really good and give you most of it and blah, 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 all this stuff. And it's like 25 people. 25 people is like the upper limit of how many fucking people's parameters and emotions you can keep in your head. And then now it's like 45 people or something. And I'm puzzling together like these like three separate three separate things running at the same time being staffed by 45 people. And I And it's really, it's broken in the sense that like I think normally once you get to that, like there's an upper limit to how much you just do it by your manually in your own brain, and I think with some bigger thing, it's not a fucking handcrafted thing anymore. Now it's like a, the computer needs to do it for you because it's getting too complicated for a person to do it. But we don't. That's not the system. The system is just I just do it, and there is no computer that does this. So it's like it's getting a little bit like impossible, and then. And then doing it for this many people is so hard that I need to, I need to, you know, like the Cal Newport book, Deep Work, which is all about how if you're really trying to hold a really complicated matrix of thoughts, lots of thoughts and how they connect to each other in a big matrix in your head, if you're trying to hold that in your head and think a big thought, if you're trying to perform deep work, 
you cannot be distracted. And if you're distracted, if someone knocks on your door, or you check your email and you think about something else, it actually takes about 20 minutes to get back to the deep work state. Like checking your email for 20 seconds does not mean that you were distracted for only 20 seconds. It means that you were pulled out of the deep work for 20 seconds. And now it's going to take you about 20 minutes to sink back into the deep state of of readopting the entire matrix of complicated thoughts into your whole brain. And so I'm trying to do it in the daytime, but there's people there the whole time that need stuff from me. So I'm trying to focus on it, but like every five minutes someone knocks on the door and it's like, I need help with this one thing. And then I help them with that one thing. And it's like, there is no ever, there's never a 20 minute break when no one wants me. So it doesn't work. So I actually couldn't start focusing on it until like after 10 p.m. when everyone left. So it took me like two hours of work after everyone left. And that's me. I'm being a martyr right now, but that's what's up, okay? And then at midnight, I just, I reached a level of tired that's, I don't know. I reached a level of tired and then I come home and I fall asleep a little bit after 3 a.m. And then I slept until 2 p.m. And it's like, dude, I do not feel normal when I wake up at 2 p.m. Like that is not, that day is not a good day. Like that, is that even a day? Like, oh, it's like almost dark. And then, you know, that was it. And I was trying just to sit with myself and just be okay with like, I guess I just needed that. And I was like, I just gave myself a day off from life. Me and Esther, we went to the laundromat. I did four huge loads of laundry. Didn't know one person could have that much laundry. Absolutely out of control. Four loads. Met up with Javi, had a burger at the burger shop next to the laundromat. That's such a sweet setup though. You hit it, you load up the laundry, you sit and you wait for Javi and then Javi shows up and you place the order and then you're waiting for your burgers and your shakes and stuff. And then you go back to the laundromat next door and you flip it into the dryer and then you go back and now your burger's ready. And then you eat a burger and then when the burger's done, you you go grab your laundry. It's like, I don't know, <laughs> there's something like... There's something deeply unreal about that for me because we don't do that in Sweden. Like, we don't have laundromats in Sweden. I don't know why. Like, it's not like our houses are nice or anything, but the setup, the setups are just different. Like, in, in Sweden, it's like, you'll live in an eight-story building in a tiny little apartment, but there's all, always a laundry room in the basement. And it's just always included. I don't know. There's no, there's no housing situation without laundry. Um, so therefore we don't have public laundromats and there's just something romantic or interesting or like prosaic or cinematic, I guess is actually the word I'm looking for. There's something cinematic about a laundromat to me because it's so like exotic. <laughs> Dude, you have to find the fucking cinematic angle of the Monday and otherwise, otherwise you'll run out of yourself. You'll run out of life. Um... Yes, we did that, and I had a burger with Hav, and then we went home and we watched a couple of episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and it's so fun to, like, <laughs> take a, a a stupid but incredible show like Curb Your Enthusiasm and, and bring it to someone like Esther and be like, have you ever heard of Larry David? And she's like, nah, who's Larry David? And then you put it on, and she's like, dude, I love Larry David. <laughs> and it's just so fun to be like, I know, right? And to just, like introduce someone to something and have them love it is 
great. It's a great feeling. So, yeah, we watched a little bit. We watched some Larry David. And she's like, I love Larry. And then <clears throat> I go to bed at, at 2 a.m., which is early for me. You know, I get off work at midnight or 1 a.m. So falling asleep at 2 a.m. is early for me. And I felt good about that. And I was like, fuck it. I gave myself a day off. I didn't do anything today except I went to the laundromat. You know, no art was created. No value was created. Just Sabbath on a Wednesday. And then... I'm like, I go to bed at 2 a.m., so I'll probably wake up at 10 a.m. It'll be a good day. I'll be rested. I'll have a day off. It'll be good. And then I wake up at, after 1 p.m. I slept 11 hours. And it's like, I guess I just have to be okay with that, you know? I guess I just have to be okay with, I have to be okay with that I, I pushed myself to a level. And I, I, I set myself, I like used up enough of myself that if I fuck around and if I fuck around with alarm clocks on my day off when I'm in the, like this, I might just break in two. I might literally, I might literally disappear and become invisible. You know, that might be it. So I might have to just be okay with this, that there's nothing. So yeah. So then I, 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 I slept 11 hours and I sit here and I'm like, I sit on a chair in silence and it's like, I'm just waiting for a thought to appear and no thoughts appear. And it's like, wow, what a different state for me. You know, no inner monologue, no inner voice, no inner narrative. What's that called? I don't know. So I'm just holding space for myself. You know, that's like an expression I never heard until one month ago and now everyone's saying it. Holding space for someone. Have you guys ever heard of this expression? <laughs> it's so funny when you hear a new thing and then you hear it over and over. So I Googled it. This is the definition. What does it mean to hold space for someone? Simply put, holding space means showing up for someone, being fully present and without judgment as you sit with that person through their difficult time. You listen fully. You allow yourself to feel their pain and negative emotions so that they don't have to do it alone. And saying that I'm holding space for myself is like an immediate narcissistic corruption of it. <laughs> it's like zero to 100 is how quickly I will corrupt something using, you know, take out my toolbox of narcissism and just invert something into what it shouldn't be. Because it should be something that a person does for someone else. But I'm deciding to say that I'm doing it for myself. And, you know, sue me. Sue me. So that's where I'm at, you know. I, I, I'm a little bit overworked, but, you know, I don't have Instagram on my phone. My phone is set to black and white. You know, I'm not addicted to anything on my phone. I'm not doing drugs or alcohol. I'm sober. My sobriety, where is my sobriety? I mean, I don't know. I think my sobriety is pretty good. Esther is staying at my house a little bit. She got kicked out of her mom's house. She needed a place to stay. She's kind of crashing here. I thought about putting her on the podcast because, you know, I mean, I'm going to air some of her dirty laundry here a little bit, but I'm not really going to do it. But, you know, she's a little bit bipolar and she had a little bit of a manic episode and she her life kind of crashed and burned a little bit. And she got kicked out of her mom's house and um, a lot of her family cut her off and she lost her job and... and um, she kind of lost a lot of things and, and 
she was at my house and we were talking about it and she was crying and I was like, part of me was like, you want to talk about this on the podcast? Cause it's good content, but it's also like, eh, you know, how exploitative can we really be? You know, how exploitative can we be? It reminded me of, <clears throat> it's really like, I am of two minds when it comes to the exploitation, because really I believe that all art is honest and does not apologize. True art doesn't apologize. And that is a euphemism for saying that it's exploitative. And it's like telling someone else's story without their consent. And it's telling your own story without your own consent. And, you know, I, we are always reminded of that thing that happened in, in, in the 90s when there was this thing called bum fights, where just like four, three, four guys um, would go outside in LA and they would just find bums and they would have a couple of 20s in their pockets and a and a camcorder and they'd walk, walk up to bums and be like hey um we'll give you guys 60 bucks if you just have a fist fight if you just punch each other in your faces and then it's just you just watch two bums just like bare knuckle fist fight each other and bloody each other up and then at the end they give them like 40 bucks or 60 bucks or something something like negligible like that and they film it and they put that out on VHS tapes that you buy on like the internet. And the whole thing was like the ultimate, most exploitative thing ever. But it was also like, I mean, it's so high and low at the same time because it's really the lowest form of lowbrow. But then Dr. Phil invited the dude, the creator onto his show. And Dr. Phil <laughs> invites him on and he's like, you're taking advantage of these people's pain. Like, what are you doing? And the guy dressed up as Uncle, uh, not Uncle Phil, Dr. Phil. Uncle Phil is <laughs> the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. No, he dressed up as Dr. Phil. He did a bald cap. He did that sort of like monk, fucking bald, bald on top, hair around the bald, and the Dr. Phil mustache. And he just put the same suit on, the fucking tan suit and tie. And he just perfectly dressed up as Dr. Phil and he's sitting there with Dr. Phil on TV and Dr. Phil is asking him, how can you do this? You're taking advantage of these people's pain. And he just looks at Dr. Phil and he goes, but that's what you do too. And it's like, fuck, wow. I didn't know you were like, I didn't know you were like incredibly, like just such a, it's such a highbrow intellectualist judo move. It's such a perfect move because it's so true. It's like Dr. Phil just... You know? Oh, God, it's so good. It's such a black belt-like TKO. Complete TKO. Ain't nothing you can... Ain't nothing Dr. Phil can say back to that, because that's what Dr. Phil does. He just invites, like, fucking white trash people in pain who, who are cheating on each other, or they have weird mental health issues that are super embarrassing and super weird, and, you know, I can't stop eating fucking dryer sheets. And you put them on TV and you're like, you got to stop eating these dryer sheets. And it's like, everyone's like, wow, dude, this guy's fucked up. He can't stop eating dryer sheets, guy. And it's like, just like bum fights. And the bum fights thing of turning it up to 100 and making it 100% transparent and just like, just shines a light on the entire like, you know, late stage capitalism, complete meltdown of it all. It's just so, I mean... Honestly, it's where America peaked in that moment in that room with Dr. Feel, Feel, 
Dr. Feel and Dr. Feel, two of them looking at each other's eyes, saying, what are you doing to these people's pain? And the other person responding, but what are you doing to these people's pain? That's where America peaked, really, if you really think about it. Something happened there, you know? Something happened in there, like around the millennium, like the turn of the millennium, you know? And I try to understand it, but there's things that happen in cultures, like vast events that permeate everything in the broad culture that we can never fully understand. All we can do is like, we can see one event and then we can see what it did to all the people. And we can never really untangle how one thing led, led to the other. It's like, we can see that in Japan, the Americans dropped two nuclear bombs on Japan. And then we can see that all the Japanese people just watch cartoon porn all day. And we're like, why? Like, what's the connection between the two? And we can never really understand it, but it's the truth. One thing led to the other. And in America, it's like, something happened with Clinton and 9-11 and the Bush the Bush administration, and now all American women want to be choked during sex. And it's like, how are those things related? Like, why are those things like that? And we, can ne we, we will never understand it, but, it's, but one thing led to the other. And it's like these vast psychological events. You know, what happened in that room with the bum fights guy? But anyway, so Esther is staying at my house and... And I'm and I'm suffering, and my life is a little bit of suffering. And and she hits this weed vape pen, and and I look at it, and I'm like, that'd be nice. And that's a little bit of a threat to my sobriety that she ha that she has that around. But but I have my I have myself, and I and I hold space for myself on this podcast, and I admit to myself that I do have that thought, and and I don't, I'm not, I haven't done it, you know, I'm not hitting that vape pen, and and it's good, and it's like. We're safe. And <clears throat> and I was talking to her about her. You know, she so she's so mad at herself that her whole life blew up and her she had this good job where she makes more money than I do. And even though she's like in her late 20s and I'm in my late 30s and she was making more money than me and she got fired because she had a manic episode and everything blew up. And, and we talked about it and, and I, I really... I really think that the meaningful comparison is saying that her thing of being bipolar is like alcoholism for me, where it's like we can have all these priorities of things that we care about, about money and friends and being there for our friends and how much effort do we want to put in to taking care of ourselves and to take care of our jobs and to take care of making money and you know, recreational things and boring things and life admin. And we can have all these things we want to do and exercise and eating healthy. And and in the end, though, the thing that needs to be priority number one that's locked in as number one is, for me, it's sobriety. And for her, it's like checking in with herself about where she's at, about mania, about cycling through different states and about taking her medication because she got too busy and she didn't take her meds. And that blew up everything, you know? She prioritized her job so much that she forgot to take her meds. And then that made her lose her job. And that, to me, that's a perfect analogy to alcoholism. Where it's like, you can think that you have all these other priorities, but your priority really is your sobriety. Because everything else is downstream from that. You know? Like, you love your wife, and you need to be there for your wife. 
and everything, like your love for your wife is the strongest thing you have and you want to be there for the person in your life that you love so much and you want to take care of her and you want to make everything good. But in reality, there's one priority above that and that is your own sobriety because if you fail with your locked in priority number one of sobriety, then everything else will implode beyond that, you know? So for me, that means that sometimes I need to just sleep 11 hours multiple days in a row and just, I just need to let myself, I just need to let myself be a little bit broken and that needs to be okay. And and yeah, the burnout is, the relationship between the burnout and the relapse and the sobriety is, it's iffy, man. It's it's dubious. It's very, very dubious, but, and I'm 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 riding this, it's a tight, it's a tight line, you know, I go very close up to the line. Like I'm very, very close to crossing the line here and it's like, it's dangerous. It's very, very dangerous, but I think I got it. I think I got it and there's a lot of people around me that I love and I'm, I love them. I love them and they, they, they see me and they see where I'm at and they, they see what I need and they walk up to me and they, they put their hands on my shoulders and they say things to me that I need to hear and it holds me up and I'm if it wasn't for them, you know, if it wasn't for the Britneys and the Stephanies, if it wasn't for the Londons and stuff, I couldn't do it. But I have them and and yeah. They see where they see me, you know? They see me and they hold space for me. That's the truth, because I'm incapable of truly holding space for myself in the end. But but I, I think I'm okay. But yeah, I had a really, really hard, I had a really hard weekend, but it's also like the whole time. <laughs> I had a really hard weekend because it's like I'm so tired and there were some moments that were really difficult. And then some of it is just work and it's difficult. And it's like, it's like, I'm, I, there's 40 people and you have to check in with all of them so that they all know what they're supposed to be doing so that they're all working on the right thing so that they stay on the right tasks so that everyone is like the correct cog in this like difficult big machine network of machinery clicking into each other and working good. And then there are these pivotal moments. Like there was this one pivotal moment like on Saturday at 7 p.m. where like we the downstairs Christmas bar is like rented out until 7 p.m. And we have to make it happen like that because they pay us a lot of money and it's 7 p.m. It's a very valuable moment to have it be uh, bought out, but we allowed it. And then to maximize the money coming in, we had to just allow people, we just had to do an immediate flip where like 7 p.m. when the private event ends is also when we're going to start seating people from the public who have reservations. So in like one second, I just get like 15 people to swarm this room and and flip the room in one second and just be like, wipe every single table immediately, carry out these fucking 100-pound chafing dishes, take this marble with a cheese plate on it, this fucking 100-pound marble with a cheese plate on it, all of these sliders, all this food, all this private event stuff, everything leaves right now and we're seating people right now. There's no like one hour to reset, there's nothing. It's immediate. All 15 of us go in at the same time and we all do it immediately. And it's like, I'm carrying these... It's just so stressful. And then you do it and it's perfect and 10, 10 parties get seated immediately and the people don't even, the people whose event ends at seven, you like walk up to all 45 of them individually and just politely have the same 
awkward conversation immediately where you're like, I'm just so sorry, but like this private event, it is only rented until 7 p.m. And I do have a reservation for this table now. So I'm going to have to ask you, to, you can you can hang out here over by the stand-up space, the standing room section. You can hang out there for a little bit because this section is not rented out just yet. So if you want to finish your drink, you can have, hang out over here. And uh, yeah, and I really appreciate you coming to the party. And then you have to have that conversation 45 times in a row while carrying something really heavy. And at the end of it, my heart's just racing. And I don't know if it's because I just carried all these like incredibly heavy chafing dishes full of food. Like normally we break them down so that you carry like the 10 pounds of burgers in one go. And then you carry the outside of it. And then you carry the burning base that's like heating the heating element you you break it into three parts that are like three individually heavy parts like one is really hot and one is really heavy and one is really full of food and then we didn't have time to break it down so i'm just carrying this whole thing in one go and it's so fucking heavy and hot and it touches my belly and it burns my little belly (laughs) i can't tell if my heart's racing because i carried all these heavy things or because i had the same awkward 30 uh, 30 second conversation with 45 different people individually in one go and my heart's just racing at the end of it but it's like good and it's fine and that's just a job and it's fine and then there's stuff that shouldn't necessarily be part of the job or like a few hours later this fella comes in and he's just wasted he's too wasted so coral immediately walks up to me and it's like i don't want to serve this guy he's he can't talk he's completely intoxicated and and I don't want to serve him. And I'm like, yes, good. Don't serve him. Just let him sit there for a bit. Give him some water. And then he immediately gets in the face of other guests and it's all weird and aggressive. And then we're like, okay, got to ask this guy to go. So I go up to him and I'm like, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I have to ask you to leave. And they sort of, him and his girlfriend, they're sort of cool with it. And he's like, it's not a big deal. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. It doesn't have to be a big deal. I just have to ask you to leave. And then he's like, well, it is a big deal. And I'm like, okay, well, so let's have it be a big deal. All good. Still going to have to ask you to leave. And then like, he's sitting right next to the back door. And I'm like, well, there is a door right here. (laughs) And everyone, (laughs) everyone in the room is like looking at me. (laughs) Oh God, it's so awkward. Everyone in the room is looking at me and listening to me and, and, because they can tell that it's tense between the screaming drunk man. And I'm like casually trying to be like, well, there is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that there is a door right here. And everyone in the room laughs. Ha ha ha, Joachim is funny, throwing a man out. And then I rode that wave of being funny a little bit too hard because the man looked at me all angry and drunk and he was about to go towards the door, but then he leaned in and there's two candles on the table that he's sitting at and he blows out the candles for no reason. And I walk up to him and I hold up the candles and I go, are you a candle terrorist? And he's so drunk that he can't process a sentence, but all he can process is that I said the word terrorist. And he looks at me and he goes, are you a fucking terrorist, bro? And his girl jumps in between us and she's like no 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 go out go out and she pushes him towards the door and she, he, he pushes her in, out of the way and he screams at me are you a fucking terrorist man and then this lady stands up from the next door it's like a christmas themed bar right i'm wearing a christmas hawaiian shirt and um you know there's ten thousand dollars of christmas decorations. there's thirty thousand dollars of christmas decorations let's be honest and and everyone's wearing Christmas gear and everyone's Christmas out and there's Christmas music and everyone's drinking through the from these like big porcelain fucking T Rex 
mugs with Santa hats on them and everything is like over the top kitsch Christmas, right? So this lady gets up from, a t- this guest gets up from a table, a few tables down and she stands behind me and she screams, you're in Santa's house, behave. And, um, and the guy gets in my face and his girl is like holding him back and he's like trying to swing at me. And Amanda Anderson is a few tables down, other manager at Holbrook. She's the morning person. She shows up at 7 a.m. This is like 11 p.m., you know? Like she worked a good 12-hour shift and then she sat down and had a cocktail with her girlfriend and her friends and she was chilling and she sees this guy who's about to beat the shit out of Uncle Joachim and the way she described it is Mama Bear came out, you know? And, and she goes in and all of these women just swarm in between us and protect me. It's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. And like Amanda Anderson is such a true friend. She's such a true protective spirit. And she holds me up so much. She does so much for me emotionally. Like, I mean, it cannot be overstated how much Amanda Anderson protects me. Like we push ourselves so hard up to the brink. And then in moments when it's just her and me, she looks at me and she grabs me and she pulls me close and she goes, how are you really doing? And she allows me to let a little bit of my, like a let just a little bit of my pain out so that I am okay. And then when some guy is trying to beat the shit out of me, she also like lunges in between us and it's like, nope, this is not cool. And then I get pushed back and I'm kind of following the guy out towards the door. And then I realize that my face is making this worse. Him seeing my face. So I just go the other way and I'm like, ah, they got this. They got this. My presence is making it worse. I better just walk away. And uh, yeah, and that was that. But that, that kind of thing makes you really stressed out. That kind of thing really raises the temperature in your heart. Just having someone screaming at you and kind of wailing, like someone kind of take a swing at you, it's, it just, it does something, it, it does something in like the different modalities of the human mind that are available to the human mind. It does something in a fight, flight, freeze sense that's sticky, that doesn't go away right away. It puts you in like a, it, re, it poses this question in your mind of like, where you're a little bit extra alert and your, your heart rate is in a slightly different place. And when that happens to you at 11 p.m., um, for 24 hours, you're just in a little bit of a different state. And then something happened the next morning. I mean, yeah, I definitely for legal reasons can't really talk about it on the podcast, but like someone had a massive meltdown. And it's so funny because I am um, layman psychiatrist give, hitting everyone with a bipolar um, diagnosis here and saying that the person who did this meltdown really, I am saying it's looking really like, I don't know, it really reminds me of Kanye West. Like there's something about bipolar and mania and stuff where those people really, they, they it's, they lose all sense of reality, but what they still want to do is they want to do high impact shit. And it's like, what that means, it's different for different people, but but it's like for Kanye West, it's like he'll hit this state of mania and what he really wants is he wants to get on Twitter and talk about it. 
It's not enough that he sits alone in his house and has enormous extreme thoughts in his head. He like, there's something about the mania state for a bipolar person where you want to get it out into the world and you want to get it to as many people as possible. And so what that means for Kanye West is Twitter. Esther, when she hit a state of mania, she got on her fucking LinkedIn and she got on the company Slack and she went feral is what she described to me. And she went so hard in the paint on her LinkedIn with crazy shit and so hard in the paint in the company Slack that they locked her out of all of her accounts and then the CEO sat down with her and was like, too many security breaches, I'm letting you go. And I felt so bad for her when when that happened. And then she's like, well, I did get a three month severance package and all of my state, all of most of my empathy disappeared in that moment because I'm like, that's a lot of money, dude. So maybe relax. But then what that meant on Sunday is like, a person had a meltdown that I don't really, I don't really get it. I feel really bad for them. I really want to like, I really wish I could have done more. I really wish they didn't have to feel all those bad feelings. There's so much sympathy in my heart. I really like, God, I wish it wasn't like this. I wish, I wish suffering didn't exist and all of that. But like the way it played out was that the person got hyper-focused on me and how I'm the problem. And the person got like extremely focused on contacting everyone in my life, telling me, telling them about what a shit person I am. And boy, oh boy, dude, that is some funky shit, dude. That is a funky, funky thing. And it's happened many times now where London and me have to deal with this thing where like people sort of separate, like it's a work environment. It's a job. We... We're trying to run a business and there are employees there and we're trying to make it work. That's all it is for us. Like, yes, we spend all of our time here. Yes, there's a lot of emotions bound up in it. But ultimately, it's like, bro, this is a job. I'm trying to get everyone to do a good job. I'm trying to do a good job and I'm trying to chill. Beyond that, I'm trying to chill. And then people have these things that happen when they ca where they cannot do their jobs properly and we have to have conversations with them and things get escalated and things go crazy and then they it, it's happened many times where like a person's meltdown leads to a hyperfixation on a manager and they really really feel the need to describe to you how you're the how like it's happened so many times now it's happened a number of times. I don't want to be a martyr. I don't want to exaggerate it. But oh boy, it's weird. It is emotionally weird to have someone melt down and turn it into a thing where they get really focused on how, how I'm the problem. And I am not innocent. Like, I get it. Like, if we were having these conversations in a normal way, I'd, I could engage with all of it and be like, yes, I don't. There are many things I need to work on here and you have many good points and there are many things I need to change and there are many things I need to learn and there are many things I need to do better. But when it just turns into this like um, very extreme, I'm trying to inflict as much pain and suffering as possible. I'm trying to be as loud and dramatic as possible and I'm trying to make it all about Joachim. It's like, wow. Oh boy, it's weird. Oh boy, the weird world is a weird place. And yeah, so that's what happened. I, I literally woke up to this thing where like <clears throat> 30 people have been contacted about how I'm 
a horrible person. And it's like, wow. Puts you in a little bit of funk. This one person contacting 30 people about what I what a horrible person I am. Puts you in a puts you in a weird puts you in a but all along the way. When the guy was when the guy was about to hit me in the face, afterwards Coral just comes up to me and, and she just like looks me in the eye and, and just puts a hand on my shoulder and says, That's a lot. That's a lot that you, I wish you didn't. And you know, Amanda Anderson texting me right away afterwards being like, I wish you didn't have to go through that. That was like what you just went through with difficult and whatever you're feeling about it now. It's like, it's okay to feel all of that. Like I'm surrounded by so many soft, beautiful souls that speak to me in such a real, like good, mature therapy language way that I will be okay. I will be okay because these people are around me. And then like, when 30 people get contacted because one person is really set on telling everyone what a horrible person I am, many of them then reach out to me afterwards and they cry and they say, look, we don't think that. That is not what we think. We don't agree with that. That is not true. And it's like, eh, just wish neither. Like almost going too hard in the paint the other way where it's like almost to an inappropriate level of telling me how much they love me. And I kind of wish the whole thing was a little bit less dramatic. And I kind of wish we could just do our jobs and chill. I kind of wish no one told me I was the worst person in the universe. And I kind of wish no one else was calling me in response to that, telling me I'm the best person in the universe. Kind of wish everyone just gave me a thumbs up and said, you're all right, you know? Kind of wish we could keep it there in the middle, the middle ground. Because the extremes, you know, Five years of sobriety. The extremes are the extremes are the language of the alcoholic, of the active drinking alcoholic. And <clears throat> the middle ground, the black and white thinking is alcoholism, you know? And the sobriety is the middle ground of just being with ourselves and realizing that right-sizing, you know? I am not the biggest person in the world. I am not supposed to be the most influential person in the world. I am not supposed to be president of the United States. And when I realize that I'm not gonna be president, I'm not supposed to go the other way and think of myself as a worm, as a useless, fucking tiny, puny, useless piece of shit worm. I am just me, you know? I am just like other people. I am in between. I need to right-size myself. I am not tiny. I am not giant. I am in between. I am like you. We are just people and we get to have friends and we deserve some stuff. We don't deserve everything. We don't deserve nothing. We deserve some stuff. We deserve to feel okay. And if we can sit with our in-betweenness, if we can sit with our in-betweenness, then we shall be okay. And it's all right. And we need to just be with ourselves there. And, you know, I, I love the world ultimately. And I, I there's so many people in my life that I love. And God. So let's just drink a sprinkling water. This brand is called Mananalu. Never tried it before. This flavor is Tahitian lime. Purified water with natural flavor essence. I'm noticing Jason Momoa. Wow. This is um this is Jason Momoa water, I'm realizing. Smells like lime. Oh my god, that's not sparkling. What the fuck? How are you gonna sell me flavored water that's not sparkling? Ugh. 
All right, so that's a zero out of 10. God, Jason Momoa, come on, man. Come on, man. Okay, let's let's review it anyway, though. I'm changing my mind. Yeah, that's not good. That's not good. It's from Metal Bottle. It tastes metallic. <sighs> Whatever. Okay, so let's switch. Let me talk about the other thing, the other sort of um, mental health check-in aspect that I... Let's talk about where I'm at with like love addiction. It's, um, what is going on? Can I talk about this? I think I can talk about this. Let me try to say my problem out loud again to see how I feel about my problem these days. My problem is that five, six years ago, five and a half years ago, five years and four months ago, I got sober. And after I got sober from drugs and alcohol, I transferred, I quickly transferred my addiction onto other things. I became addicted to phone games because phone games were a thing where I felt really bad and I could look down on my phone and hyper-focus on, hyper-focus on a thing. And then when the phone game was going well, I could be like, oh my God, things are going well. I'm, this is something I still, I guess this is just how the mind is. Like, I guess the mind, hyper-focus is a weird state because I will do this thing even now where I will play chess on my phone sometimes, like twice a day. And I I, I like it. I think it's okay because it's kind of like, it's a full like 15 minute experience and it's like actually entertaining and it's actually challenging for my mind. I've played 4,000 games of chess. I checked my account uh, a few days ago. I've played 3,850 games of chess or something like that in the last five years. And each game is like a 15-minute thing. Um, there's a time and maximum. No game, 20 minutes is the max. And it uses my, it's like, it's pleasant to to do something that's truly uh, cognitively challenging. I, I think that's pleasant. And then when the game ends, I don't necessarily just want to start another game. That's why I think it's not the most addictive thing in the world. Like, that's why I don't think it's the most destructively addictive thing. I don't really, I, I frequently, it does take a few seconds to get the game started. Um, so I'm pretty good about checking in with myself about why I'm playing, why I'm gonna go play a game of chess right now. Because that was the problem with the phone games right when I got sober. I, I remember playing Egg Incorporated and it was like this infinite thing where you, you open it and it's infinite and it's just one infinite game where you build an infinitely larger fucking egg hatchery factory where you just buy more buildings to hatch more eggs. And it was just like this absolutely meaningless, not cognitively challenging. The numbers are going up on the screen and it, that's a dopamine hit and you can become hyper-focused on it. But the hyper-focus of the chess though is still true that like in the for the duration, for the 15 minutes of the chess game, I am so hyper-focused on it that when it's going well, I feel exhilarated and I feel like everything in my life is going well. And then when the chess game, when I notice that I did two bad moves and I'm now losing, it feels like everything in my life is going bad. And then the interesting thing is to have that um, counteracting with the chess ratings because chess ratings, the way chess ratings work on chess.com is that each game 
you're matched up with someone that has the same rating as you. And if you win, your rating increases. So now you get matched up with someone slightly better. So the way it works, if you play enough games, it will always match you with someone that's exactly at your rank. So your win-lose ratio will always be 49-51. It will always be an almost perfect 50-50 split. You will be losing every other game and you will be winning every other game. Because as soon as your rating goes up to above what your actual skill level is, you'll be matched up with someone that's slightly better than you and they'll destroy you. And then you'll be pushed down to just below your skill level. And then you'll be matched up with someone who's slightly below you and then you'll destroy them. And then you go up and down. So it's like this perfect, because like chess skill is so measurable you'll always be at a perfect 50-50 split in wins and losses, which is why it's so like logically, rationally absurd to think that the, fa the fact that I lost this chess game right now means that, the, that my life isn't going well. Like rationally, that thought doesn't make any sense, but it is how it feels. When you are hyper-focused on something and that one thing is going well, it does give you a full body feeling of good. That is true. That is how it is. And so I, I, I will play a 15-minute game of chess. Before starting, I will check in with myself to see, am I running away from some really, really, am I feeling really, really bad now and I want to blanket and crowd out that really bad feeling with a game of chess? Or am I just feeling okay? Am I just trying to do something recreationally? And I do check in with myself and I don't really play chess as a way to run away from my emotions fully. It's like this little break I take from reality where you can kind of relax and do something else. And then it's kind of refreshing to come back to the world after being hyper-focused on a chess game for 15 minutes. So the hyper-focused thing is weird though. It's weird. It's, 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 um, I'm suspicious of it, but it's, I, I guess it's just how it is. Like we cannot, it's, it is not in the nature of the human mind to always just keep a bird's eye view of everything. It is just not how we work. The way we work is we look at one thing and that is what we are focused on and what we are, we're judging that thing and that is, that sense of judgment is our feeling. Like we cannot pretend like that just, we cannot make that small. That has to be all of it. Everything, like every moment is all consuming. That isn't to say that we need to be captured by thought and feeling. We must practice we must have a meditation practice where we daily recognize in ourselves not to be captured by feelings and thoughts, but, and to just take ourselves out of the capture. But, but still, sometimes we have to dive in and out of it, you know? We cannot always be falling backwards, fall back and just look at the whole big picture. Sometimes we have to dip our heads into something and be focused on it. We have to just be good at both states. So I got sober five years and four months ago. I dove into different other addictions like phone games and, you know, reading the news. And I've recapped this many times. And then <clears throat> after cycling through a couple of different weird addictions, I landed in myself a little bit. And the addiction that I've struggled with is, well, one big thing has is work, work addiction and that's sort of a good one because it is, it can, you can integrate it into your life and have it be something where you are, while you're engaging in the thing you just choose to be addicted to, you are building a life and you are building a future and it has like results. 
So it is a thing that a lot of rational people sort of like choose as their addiction. And then you can definitely go too hard in the paint on it. And I go pretty fucking hard in the paint on it. But for now, it's just like, look, it's working. Like I sleep at night. I work at, in the day. And I like, I mean, I'm sleeping enough. I'm working. I'm eating carrots. You know, I'm sober. I feel pretty good. I make some money. You know, we wax them, you know? I get waxed, I wax people. It's all good, you know? I work hard. I can't believe that's Jason Momoa's water I just drank. Okay, there's a quote from Jason Momoa on the side of the bottle. Let me just take a break and just read that quote. Thank you for joining the wave of change to end the single-use plastic bottles around the world. Full stop. For the land, for our oceans, and for the future generations that depend on us, mahala. Mahalo. Jason Momoa. All right, Jason. Drink one, remove one. Mm. Electrolytes added for taste. Eh. Okay, whatever. So <clears throat> there was there's work addiction that's like sort of always present, and that's fine. And then there's this thing of <sighs> love addiction, where as a sober person, you know, oh God, I've been hanging out with my buddy who, I've been hanging out with my buddy who, he's my age, we've known each other for 20 years, we both probably have addiction issues, he will never admit it to you, but he admits that he's better when he's sober, and then when he's sober, he likes to grind. He likes to do this insane grind of making money, and he will tell you that he's doing it for his kid, because he needs to work hard as a motherfucker because he has a kid and he's doing it for his daughter. But really, the truth is, his daughter does not benefit from him always betting it all on black. And he's, he always bets it all on black and it's, <clears throat> he will work hard as a motherfucker, he'll get a lot of resources and then he'll bet it all on black and then he'll double his money and then we'll have an insane amount of everything and then things will be going insanely well, and he I, he will be experiencing a full body high, and that full body high is not in the interest of his daughter, because then you keep betting on black, eventually you fucking lose it all, and he fucking lost it all, and he fucking has nothing, and then now he has nothing, and now he has to work, and he has to have these little amounts of resources, and he's talking to me about how insane it feels to have a little amount of resources when you used to have a insane amount of resources, and yeah, that's because you're a gambling addict, buddy. That's because you need to go to a support group. And he's refusing to admit this himself, but I have also haven't really pressed him on it. And we're probably going to have some really tough and interesting conversations with each other in the near future. And I look forward to that because he's my buddy and I love him. And I'll give him the shirt off my back because, and he's the most generous person I've ever met. And he's given me more things than anyone has given me not counting my mom. My mom gave me a lot of things when I was a child. She spent more money on me than anyone because she's my mom. And second to my mom is this guy. Most generous person I've ever met spent so much money on me. Good guy. So me though, it's like as a sober person, you can bet it all on black. And if you have 200 grand to your name and you bet it all on black and you win, that will give you a feeling that will emanate from your brain out into your entire body and it will create a drug-like high and you don't have to put any chemicals in your body and you'll fucking feel it, bro. 
Because when you then sit there with 400 grand in front of yourself because you bet 200 grand on black and it doubled, you will feel it. I promise you, you will feel it. And what I found is that when I meet someone and I look at them and I'm like, you're so cool and you're so pretty and I respect everything you're saying and I really like your opinion on stuff and I like just the way I feel when I'm talking to you and then if I tell that person and I like them and they tell me that they like me back, there you go. That's dopamine. That's, if I take that risk of being a little bit vulnerable and being like, I feel something when I look at you and they look at me and say, well, I feel something when I look at you. Oh my God, there you go. Full body high again. And it's, that's so much like a drug. And I can, I can ride that wave for about six weeks or eight weeks. And that's addiction. And so I've tried I try a lot of things to, I try a lot of things to ameliorate that. And I think, I think one thing is to ask you are, because the, the weird thing about it, right, is that just like food addiction or anything, it's like it's different than an alcohol addiction because you cannot stop. The solution is not do not feel love, do not engage with people, do not. There's no cutting yourself off from the thing. We have to be in the world and we have to be with people and we have to... We have to exist in a concept context. We have to meet people. We have to tell them that we love them. They have to look at us and we have to we have to love and be loved. It's just that we have to figure out a way to have a healthy relationship with this thing that you cannot cut out of your life. Alcohol you can cut out of your life. You cannot cut money making out of your life. You still need to make money and you need to have just a healthy relationship to it. You cannot cut food out of your life. You just need to have a healthy relationship to it. You cannot cut sex out of your life. You just need to have a a sexy relationship to it is what I almost said. You have to have a healthy relationship to sex. And you cannot cut love out of your life. You have to just figure out a way to not deal with love in a addictive way. So I've tried many things and I'm working on it and it is what I'm working on. But so I think some guidelines that I've developed for myself is as I am walking towards love and giving someone validation and they give me validation back and I am feeling the drug-like high of our mutual infatuations, I have to fall back and look at my mind and check in with myself and see what I'm doing. And I have to ask myself, is this a relationship I truly believe in or am I just doing this relationship because I am addicted to the validation that they're giving me? And I have realized that that's an evolving thing. It's an evolving thing where like you meet someone and you talk to someone and you have a feeling and a belief about them where in the beginning you can feel and believe that this is actually something that might work out and have a long-term thing because really what I want is a long-term thing. If I was just French enough, if I was just Cami, you know, if I was just Germa, all these French dudes that I grew up around who just wanted to fuck a lot of women, if I was just like Cami and I just wanted to fuck a lot of women for the rest of my life, this would be fine. I could just cycle through six-week relationships with different women my whole life and it'd be fine. And it's like, you know, it's good enough, but but I don't want that. I want to build towards something real. 
And so what I need to do is, as I am becoming, as I am experiencing the thrill of validation, I need to ask myself, is this just the thrill of validation or do I kind of believe that this has a future? And I'm realizing that that's an evolving thing where I need to check in with myself one once per week and be like, I am, I am now getting to know this person more. Is this something I still believe in? Because the first week when you know very little about someone, your mind kind of fills in the blanks and you actually have to just be okay with that. You have to be okay with the not knowing. You have to kind of be okay with the fact that I don't know yet. I don't know if this has a future. And I kind of have to try it out and I have to walk towards love. And that kind of means that I'm getting validation for something that might not have a future, but I have to be okay with that. And I have to just keep checking in with myself and see if, am I lying to myself here because I want this validation or not? And I'm sort of doing okay with that. I'm sort of just, you know, like there's been some things in the recent past where I have not walked towards it because I was like, I don't believe in this. And then I'm trying to, early on with someone, I'm trying to say out loud, look, I just want you to know that these are issues that I'm dealing with. And I'm trying to, well, one important thing is, I think I need to be a little bit weird and conservative and fucking traditional about sex where I need to like only have sex in a context of something that I kind of believe in. And it's up and down with that, you know? It's like, it's not perfect. Because belief is a fickle thing for me. I'm a very skeptical person. I'll stop believing in something in five minutes, you know? And really what we have to do is we have to look out over, we have to look out over the vast span of feelings that we've had in the last seven days and be like, so what's the average here? On average, do I believe in it? Because there's definitely a dark night of the soul every few days where I don't believe in nothing. And we can't just play to that feeling because that's just me being like broken in my own way. And instead I need to be, look at the seven day average and be like, I do kind of believe in this, so we're going to keep trying and we're going to keep exploring and we're going to keep getting to know someone. But then I'm also, I'm, I'm toying with the, with the idea that would it be good for me to just be friends with someone for like kind of a long time and like kind of get to know them for a long time before I, you know, would it be good for me to know someone for a while? I don't know. I lost my trail of thought a little bit there because I just kind of sat and thought about things. Lost my trail of thought a little bit, but it's like I need to keep checking in with myself and I need to feel my feelings and I need to ask questions about my feelings and I need to maybe take it a little bit slow. But the slow thing is really not a panacea. It doesn't because in a way you do have to explore to get answers. So you kind of do have to just like proceed with things and you have to kind of spend time with someone and you have to kind of go towards the feeling to find out if it's worth or worth it or not. But, and yeah, it's also weird. I'm also feeling like, God, now this is going to turn into a little bit of bragging for a little bit, but I'm also feeling like, I'm hitting my, I'm, that I'm doing something right in terms of, I mean, for the last few years and especially recently, I, I do sort of, I did sort of choose a kind of conventional wisdom path of like, I want to be in a good relationship. So maybe I should just build myself towards being someone who is a good partner and 
if I can just make myself kind of attractive and make myself kind of like a high value partner, then maybe that will be a first step towards ending up in a good relationship. And I, and I, I wonder about this because like, I've almost never in my life been asked out by women. Almost never. Very rarely. It's like once every five years, someone asks me out. Usually, I've a lot of the dating I've done has been dating app focused. And I'm really, I'm interested in dating apps because dating apps are this thing where they changed the world in the sense that like before dating apps, you had to be in regular life and you had to ask people who were in no way announcing that they were single and they were in no way announcing that they were out there in the dating pool. And you had to just approach people who are random fucking people and be like, hey, can I ask you out? And then they are going to be like, bro, I, I, you know, there's, they'll be like, there's a sexual orientation incompatibility here, or I'm, my relationship status is, is incompatible with what you're suggesting, or like, you're ugly. And then dating apps is this thing where, well, if you find someone on there, they're announcing to you that they're in the dating pool and they give you basic information about what they're fucking orientation is and you can make a judgment call if you're compatible with that and then you can talk to them and so in a way it's a very utopian thing and once you spend a little bit of time on dating apps where you are talking to people who are announcing that they are single and that they want to be asked out it gets a little bit weird to be in the real world and to look at someone and be like can i ask you out because it's a weird because it's weird because it feels non-consensual. It feels like, it feels rude somehow. And I think that's, I haven't made up my mind on if that's broken or not. I haven't decided, because I can see I'm of two minds when it comes to that. Because it's like, in a way, it's nice to just like, you know, my buddy Nathan, he was telling me how a few years ago he was like, he was at Target and he was looking for shower curtains and he can't find the section with shower curtains. And he's in this aisle and he can hear from the aisle over this like woman with a cool Russian accent asking a staff person for shower curtains. And he's like, oh, that's what I'm looking for too. So he goes into the next aisle and he meets this woman and she's like this beautiful Russian woman. And they get into this cool banter about like, are you a spy? And she's like, are you a spy? And then they start dating. <laughs> And there's something nice about that. And I didn't know Nathan had fucking riz, bro. <laughs> Nathan has riz like a motherfucker, it turns out. And then when later, he's like, and then when I told her that I was sleeping with other women, she just lit a cigarette, looked at me, smoked the whole thing, chugged a cider because she was gluten intolerant. And she didn't say shit. And then she left when the cider was out and when the cigarette was over. And he's like, and that was a cool way to go. <laughs> Fucking Nathan, dude. Nathan is oh, Nathan is the best, dude. Who doesn't love Nathan? Nathan is the best server I got, and he thinks he's not good at banter, and it's so cute that he thinks he's not good at it, because somehow I've curated a library of quick-witted people that will out-banter anyone, and the banter is way too high level, on a level that's like not always appropriate, keep bringing it down, but it's quick. It's fast. Whatever it is, it comes fast and it comes hard. And Nathan thinks he's not good enough with the banter. And really, he's got, he really, he's the best. 
because he's slower. And sometimes slower with the banter and perfect with the confidence and fluent with the food and just reliable. Oh, God, I love that man. And we play chess now. We're playing chess on. His username is Illuminati. So cute. Anyway, I'm saying that there's something to the old world way of just like you're at Target and you hear someone talking in the one aisle over and you like the sound of their voice and you walk towards it and you strike up a conversation and now you're dating. There's something beautiful about that. And they didn't announce it and they didn't walk around with a Like I saw this one ad on Instagram where it's like there's a green ring you can wear where you're announcing that you're single. And if you're wearing that ring or you see someone wearing that ring, you can go up to them and be like, can I ask you out? And these people on there are like, I wore the ring and I got asked out and and it's perfect. And it's like, ah, I don't know about that though. There's no risk to it. It, Just like how on a dating app, there's like less risk somehow because you're like, you both already swiped on each other. I don't know. It's more polite. We can see both sides of this stuff, you know? On the one hand, you're like, I'm not allowed to say anything anymore. And on the other hand, you're like, maybe you shouldn't say anything, you know? Maybe you should think about what you're saying. I'm of two minds when it comes to this stuff. But so, anyway, I've I've almost never been asked out. But in the last six months, in the last six months, like four different women asked me out. And all four of them are like, People I really respect as people, like really, really cool people. Because, I mean, I don't know, not that I've really experienced this that whole much, but I don't know, like women get asked out a lot more than men, especially in America. I think the norm is for men to ask women out. And women will describe how like, if you're asked out by a kind of crazy, old, decrepit enough looking person, it's kind of like you do kind of look in the mirror afterwards and ask yourself, does that person think that they're on my level? And it feels rude and it's devastating. But in the last six months, I've been asked out by four different women and all four of them are like, I'm very flattered and they're very cool. And it's all very, it's making me feel like I'm doing something right. Where it's like, I'm just, I, I have been working on myself a lot. Thank you for noticing. You know, like I went to volunteer at the youth center. I went to volunteer at the youth center. I went to volunteer at the youth center because of my sobriety and because I needed to be of service to other people. That's how it started. And I talked about it on the podcast, but also, you know, it's also part of working on ourselves. It's also part of like, maybe we should leave the house and do something that looks and feels constructive. Like maybe we should go through the motions of being a good person so that we can learn how to be a good person. And maybe then someone will ask us out, you know? And that's kind of what happened. Like I go there and I don't know. Should I talk about that? I don't know. Feels a little bit. Am I oversharing? You know, I go to the youth center and I volunteer and then the director of the youth center slides into my DMs on Instagram and it's like, you want to go for a cup of coffee sometime? And I message her back and I'm like, are you are you asking me out on a date right now? And she goes, yeah, I am. And it's like, damn, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, of course I want to go on a coffee. Of course I want to get a cup of coffee with you. You're cool as fuck. But it's also like, 
yeah, where do I want to end up, you know? What am I ending up with? I think that's a fallacy to the view of it that, that, that there's an ending. It's not, there's no ending. We, we, the framing is like you end up with someone, but there's no ending up with someone. There's the present. And you would choose to spend the present with someone and we want to build. So we want to spend a long, a many presents with someone. But eventually one of us is going to die or 20 years from now we're going to grow apart or all of that has to just be what it is, you know? Really, it's just we have the present and we want to be with someone in the present where we're not compromising. We're just being with someone that we actually, where we actually believe in it, where we actually are not forcing ourselves to be outside of our, you know, to just be with who we want to be with and feel the right feelings. Yeah, I don't know. Recently, I had this relationship and I like spent time with her. And each week, I like felt deeper and deeper feelings for her. And it was very nice. And a lot of things about it was very good and it made sense. And I was like into it. And then after a few weeks, I just found myself like feeling more and more that like she was so great and she really deserved someone to feel a little bit more than I was feeling. And I was feeling a little bit emotionally flat and I was feeling like I was telling myself I should feel more. And then I just sort of like ran out of feeling. And at some point there, I was like, oh God, I'm not being completely honest with myself here about what I'm feeling. And I'm feeling like I'm forcing myself in the, the dissonance, that discrepancy between what I should be feeling and what I'm actually feeling is too big and I have to be honest and I have to talk about this because I respect her a lot and she's really cool and she's really a beautiful, good soul and she deserves to be loved and I'm not falling in love with her. And it's like, you know, maybe that just wasn't the one, you know? And it's so like, <clears throat> I'm talking to my buddy Sam about this every day and and it's so hard to know, like, the question is like, are my, am I emotionally broken and I cannot fall in love or am I not just meeting the right person that I cannot, that I, if I meet the right person, will I truly fall in love or am I emotionally broken and I'm meeting a bunch of great people, but I'm not truly falling in love. That's like, God, I, God, I worded that poorly, but, but that's the question. Like, is it me or is it not me? And Secretly, I think in my heart of hearts, I believe that I am still capable of falling in love. If I just meet someone where it's just right and I feel it and I will keep feeling it. And in the beginning, I will feel infatuated for six weeks. And then after that, I will come out the other end and I'll look at them and I'll be like, I'm not infatuated. I'm just falling in love with you. And I haven't felt that for a long time. I think I felt that with Jamie. And I definitely felt that with Megan. And I definitely felt that with Wendy Wang. Oh, God. Oversharing. Oh, God. I saw this thing on Instagram today where I was like, someone's like, oversharing is just a thing that boring people invented to stigmatize people who just want to talk about interesting stuff. And I'm deciding to believe that. There is no such thing as oversharing. It's like, life is interesting, we talk about it. And if you can't handle the fact that I'm talking about all my interesting shit, then maybe shut the, like, maybe just, 
maybe don't listen to an hour and 10 minutes into my podcast. You feel me? Like, maybe don't punish me for just wanting to hang. You know? <laughs> me and Esther, we're watching. We're both suffering. She's like, you know, lost her job. <laughs> Total ma massive medical event mania. Fucking got kicked out of her house. Has nothing. <laughs> and, then, and me, I'm just suffering, and we're on the couch, and we're watching Curb Your Enthusiasm, and, and Larry David goes, he, he has all these problems, and he just looks into the camera, and he goes, can a motherfucker live? <laughs> and we're both like, we're both like, god damn, I feel that. God damn, I feel that. That's exactly how I feel. So we've been texting that back and forth to each other in the last few days when life just gets hard. It's like, can a motherfucker live? It's so funny with an old white man who's like, <laughs> dude, the whole premise, it's such, an, I don't know, it's incredible. Larry David living with, having this vague roommate relationship with J.B. Smoove. <laughs> it's like, what an incredible show. It's just so like, the fact that they are on season 11 too, and you watch it and it's like fire. It's fire. It's so fresh still. It's still like perfect. How can you do, like, what an incredible genius. Okay, let's drink another water. The brand is Mananalu. That's probably Hawaiian for something positive. Um, Jason Momoa, this flavor is Lily Koi Passion. Lily Koi Passion. Let's smell it. Oh, I see it. It's written here. It says, zero calories, zero sweetener, zero bubbles. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I'm doing my best. You know, I have a sparkling water podcast. Last week, I forgot to drink the water. The week before, I forgot to drink the water. The week before that, I forgot to drink the water. This week, I accidentally bought still water. I'm sorry. Like, I am doing my best. You know, I will be emailing HR about Joachim specifically. I'm sorry. I'm doing my best. It's not very good. I get it. I get it. I'm not very good at it. But like, I'm trying, okay? Like, it's not like I'm not trying. I sleep and I wake up and I go and I spend all day at it and I try my best. And then when I come home, I just fall asleep. Like, I have no life outside of how I try. Like, I try my best to make this work. And I try my best for all of these people and they all need so much for me. And I'm trying. And the water isn't even sparkling. Let's smell it, though. Smells very good. Lily Koi is really, really underrated. Let's taste it. Yeah, the first thing that hits you is the metal. It's metallic. And the middle of the palette, it's a journey. The first segment, the first things that hit you is metallic. And then it's super clean, just water, no flavor. And then it's metallic again. And then at the end, it's lilikoi. And then it goes to just dirty. And then it goes to metallic fade out. So like this is a one out of 10. That's a one out of 10. It's really like, Jason Momoa, I get that you're trying to be like Jay-Z and have a lot of ventures going at the same time and be a movie star and produce a TV show about rock climbing and, oh, I just cut myself on the top. Oh, God. Am I bleeding? Jason Momoa, this bottle is like hurting me physically. I'm bleeding from my finger and the flavor is terrible and you're doing too much. But at the same time, he's definitely doing his best. So it's all right. It's all right. He's definitely doing his best. I love you, Jason Momoa. <laughs>